Tim Don is out for a routine training ride. Kona, Hawaii. Two days before he's due to compete in the Ironman World Championships. So I was in the cycle lane, obviously on the right side of the road. He'd done this a thousand times. There's a petrol station to my right. Then, out of the corner of his eye... I remember it was a white truck, and I remember seeing it and skidding. And thinking, oh, I've just put my brand new race tyres on, they're going to have a bald patch on. And then I remember waking up about, well, they said it was about half an hour later. He was in a hospital bed. And all of a sudden there's a nurse got my ankles, someone's got my shin, someone knee, one my thigh, one my hip, one my chest, one my stomach. And that's when I realised, yeah, something's is pretty serious. I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is How to Be Superhuman. Tim Don is one of the finest endurance athletes this country has ever produced. After a successful career for Team GB as an Olympic distance triathlete, he decided to go bigger, longer, harder. Ironman isn't just triathlon, it's survival. In Ironman, you don't just swim, ride and run. You swim for 2.4 miles before getting on your bike for another 112 miles and then you just top it off with a marathon as you do, just for good measure. Don by name, Don by nature. Tim still holds the world record in Ironman, but back in 2017 he was going for the big one. The World Championships in the spiritual home of the sport in Kona. And that's where everything started to go wrong. What happened next is an extraordinary tale of human spirit and sheer bloody-minded determination as Tim struggled to recover from the worst day of his life. Yeah, so I think I was lucky. Um, you know, my parents were very sporty. We never had um like computers and all that kind of stuff growing up. My dad, he was a, a Premier League referee, so I used to when he was running in the evenings, I'd ride my BMX next to him for like six, seven miles. I swam from a young age. I think when I was about seven, I would be swimming before school and half my friends didn't believe me. So I'd do the old classic, lick my hand and get them to smell it and you stink of glory. <laughs> and they'd be like, wow, you went swimming before school? And I was like, yeah, but I was going up and down. I wasn't on the inflatables. No water stuff. slides. No, <laughs> I was at Feltham Air Parks. <laughs> so when did you start, like, sort of, was it your swimming that was your first love? Was that like, I'm good at this, I'm going to push on at this? Like, where did the other disciplines come in? Yeah, I mean, obviously I love football, but... I realised pretty young that I was never going to be the next um, Chelsea player, Man U player. And I always swam and I loved it. I mean, um, I've always loved pushing myself almost more so than beating other people, I think. And I think swimming's a great thing because it's so time orientated, not so much tactics, really, looking back. Um, so, yeah, no, I always loved, loved swimming, definitely. So why triathlon then? Why not just persist with the swimming? Um, I got into running, you know, at the end of primary school, so junior school, I guess now, year six and seven. And then I joined Hounslow Running Club. And then at the same club, there was this other fella who, who'd just come into the country, joined the same run, run squad as me. And I'm like, 
are you you know at the moment it was just like brilliant we're just smashing it we're going to the county champs we're smashing it up there and it was just we'd ride our bikes on a tuesday and thursday evening to hounds athletics track in feltham sometimes the track had been burned it was a pretty rough area um yeah we just do our sessions with our coach um and then go home so but, who was that guy then was, <laughs> he, was, he, was he any good yeah he's pretty good yeah that was mo farah <laughs> yeah i mean he went to uh, felton community college which they were one of the rivals of my school um, um st marks in hounslow and so how did you get into the competitive side of that? Because it's not really something you tend to do at school much, is it? No. I mean, mm. my PE teachers would say, oh, how did, what, what is triathlon? Is it horse riding? Is it sight? You know, they really didn't have a Scooby what triathlon was. There was a swimming pool near where I lived called Hampton Open Air Swimming Pool. And there was a triathlon club there called Thames Turbo. I'd heard about it. Someone said, hey, you should go. I went down there, needed some money, didn't particularly want to work at River Island next or John Lewis in Kingston. So I got a job. Um, as a lifeguard at Hampton Open Air Swimming Pool, and that's when I joined the triathlon club. And like, were you an instant success? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was. I was. I'm not saying hey, I was good, but you know, I, I, I wasn't like international standard. But you know, I had the technique for the swim, and I could run. But I was dog awful on the bike. <laughs> so when did things start to pick up? I think it was 1993. And it was a duathlon, so that's run, bike, run. And there's a place in Chertsey called Tank Tracks, which is the army military, and it's closed roads, and they do duathlons there because there's no traffic. There was a youth duathlon. I've run the Grim there, and I know exactly what So you know the hill, the beast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's brutal, isn't it? Yeah, especially in January. 25%. um, And I finished fifth there, and then this guy came up to me, and he had love tattooed on his right knuckles and hate on his the classic. other one, the classic. His <laughs> name was Mick English and he was from Derby and he was the, the British team manager. And he said, look, you've come fifth. We want to select you for the European Draftland champs. And I was like, wow, OK, yeah, cool, definitely. And he goes, it's in Finland. And I was like, oh, I have to ask my mum and dad, I think, because my <laughs> mum and dad weren't there. And I didn't even have clipless pedals. I was just riding with my running trainers on. I went to the European champs and got fourth as a youth in the duathlon, which sounds pretty good, but I was still third Brit. <laughs> yeah, your mum and dad must have been proud of you, but did they want you to go down that route? Or No. No, <laughs> no, no they were proud of me, but back then, I mean, this is in the mid-90s, it wasn't an Olympic sport. Not many people did triathlon, really. It was a, a f- very much a fringe sport. And, you know, when you say, hey, this is what you want to do, I was... A good student. I was head boy. My sister's five years older. She was already at Oxford University. She got, I think, 98% in her entrance exam. My father was a headmaster. My mum was a primary school teacher. Yeah, they wanted me to go to uni. But he didn't go to uni. He went to the European Junior Championships instead and finished second on a borrowed bike the day after his was stolen. He would go on to compete at the very first Olympic triathlon in Sydney 2000 before moving on to Athens, finishing 18th, and then Beijing, where he was pulled off the course during the race due to illness. Now he was a father, and he realised after another Olympic cycle that he just needed a new challenge, and that was Ironman. The Ironman distance, just explain the distance for people, you know, who aren't too familiar with it. So Ironman distance is 3.8 kilometre swim, 
180 kilometer bike and then a 42.2 kilometer run a marathon yeah what is it that basically makes it so hard for people to complete because you know if it's called an ironman it pretty much defines what it is you've got to be some unit to get through it yeah anything over five hours you do not have enough energy in your body to sustain the level of performance that you want, whether you're a professional or an amateur. So it becomes a fourth discipline, which is fuel and hydration, so fourth and fifth. And that is the hardest thing because your body is not used to taking on calories, taking on electrolytes while it's working so hard, while you're trying to digest the food and the energy and absorb it in your gut as well as get enough blood to your your quads and glutes or your arms for the swim. And on top of that, environmental conditions, the longer you go, become more of a factor. You can race it, but only the, the very finest athletes can actually race an Ironman. The rest of you are competing against yourself and seeing what you can do with your body. And now was the time for Tim to really test his body out. 2014, 2015, we had nailed um, 70.3 and any any start line, I was confident I was going to be in the battle, you know, to win. You really want to nail an Ironman. It was 2017, the South American Championships in Brazil and Tim was off to a flyer. Yeah, I mean, I came out to swim with the leaders. The plan was, you know, for the first 40k to hit a certain power and then go from there. And it was all going well. He was performing exactly how he'd hoped. I hit the power and I'm getting these splits and they're going, it's four minutes, six minutes, six and a half, eight minutes. And I'm going, oh my God, am I going too fast? Is my power meter working? You know, all these things start going through your head, but nope, stick to the plan. Nutrition, stick to the plan, nutrition. And I came off the bike with a, I think it was a 21 minute lead. 21 minutes. That is huge at this stage of the race. He was way out ahead started the run it's a big out and back ran past the team hotel and um one of the team coaches there frank he was like tim if you run a 248 marathon you're gonna break the record and i was like awesome and i was like what record and he goes the world record the world record the fastest ever and now he was close all he had to do was keep going keep pushing And then about a mile to go, someone says, Tim, you're doing great. You're there. You're nearly there. You're so close. And I'm thinking, am I under the record, over the record? I I think I'm running on pace for a 248. I remember sprinting down and I thought, don't worry. When I turn into the home straight, you see the gantry and you'll see the clock. And I'll either know I haven't broken it or I have. Turn down the finishing straight. The clock is facing the blooming photographers. So I'm like, what do I do? So I ended up sprint, sprint, sprint. And I cross the line. And then I think the the photo is, is I look behind me and then I go to my knees. And I go to my knees and literally I'm saying, thank bloody hell for that. So you scrape through? I scrape through by four minutes. If I'd have known that, I would have like high-fived, every, high-fived everyone. But you just, your mind plays tricks with you. I mean, this is seven hours into 
you know, where you're pushing your body, you're, you're not necessarily thinking rationally or as rationally as you think. And I was thinking, you know, do you believe your watch? I mean, how many times is a watch wrong? Yeah. <laughs> but at that moment, it was going to be wrong. <laughs> you ran the race you were meant to run, I'm sure. You know, maybe in future someone will miss out on the world record by one second and you'll be glad you didn't monkey mm. around high-fiving. <laughs> totally. So you basically you'd qualified for the world championships yeah. again in Kona. And this time you were you were, must have been in a position to do some real damage. 15th wasn't your goal this time, surely? Absolutely not. No, and I I never go to races at expecting to win i always go there wanting to be in the fight for a podium because i can only control one thing and that's me i can't control someone else's training the weather the course so yeah that year without a doubt like physically i'd gone up a a level from brazil emotionally and mentally i was ready i was i was really happy i was rooming with one of my best mates my manager was there julie was there (laughs) looking back it was probably almost going too bloody perfectly (laughs) I would say the last three weeks, Julie and Matt were more worried that any more training I was going to be overcooked because they were like, you can't get any fitter. Just things were really rolling so nicely. Tim was going into Kona, a genuine contender for the top spot. I did the open water swim race a week before, which is swimming on the course. I really like doing that. Swam a good time, but I felt, you know, I swam within myself. Things were good. I was in a good headspace. It was race week. All the hard work had been done. All he needed to do was keep his body ticking over. Yeah, I decided to go for a ride on my own because I had some sprints to do. So I rode out of town and then once you get past the airport, it's a lot quieter because there's no resorts out there, so everyone comes into town. He was focused, comfortable. So I was in the cycle lane, obviously on the right side of the road. There's a petrol station to my right a car coming towards me. I remember it was a white truck and I remember seeing it and skidding. He turned in front and I went into his passenger side door so he kind of T-boned me. This could be really serious. And it happened at the worst possible time. And then I remember waking up about, well, they said it was about half an hour later. I was, yeah, so I knocked myself out. And what did you think when you came around? The first thing I was worried about was my bike, as you do. You know, we love our bikes, us triathletes. It didn't look very well to me. No, no, it definitely didn't. But they wouldn't let me move, you see. I was lucky that um, there's the one road, there's like 3,000 people racing and about 10,000 people in town for the triathlon. So there are people always riding. And one of the guys that stopped was an Aussie and he was a doctor. And he was like, don't take his helmet off. Wait for the paramedics. Don't move him. So they they didn't move me. Um, They had this portable x-ray. X-rayed my collarbones, not broken. I had these indentations on my head where the polystyrene had been compressed. So literally I had these big three red things. Uh, 100% saved your life. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I wouldn't be here without my helmet. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, so I went in for a... A CAT scan of my brain. They said it was as it should be. Had an MRI. 
and then came out and then they wanted to do another MRI, what they call under contrast. So that's where they inject something into your blood really quickly. It's a, a dye that goes through your blood. And when mm. it's at a certain point, they do the MRI so they can see where the blood vessels are and the bones. Did it make you feel like you wanted to wee yourself? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no, it won't. Oh, I think I just pissed myself. <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> um so yeah, they took me in there and I, I'm not walking, I'm on a bed and they're sliding, like a nurse has got my ankles, one's got my hips, one's got my shoulders and head and they slide me in there. And then after this third MRI, they say through the headphones, yep, yeah, we're done, we're coming in. So I go and the door opens and I'm like, blimey neck, who's that? And all of a sudden there's a nurse got my ankles, someone's got my shin, someone knee, one my thigh, one my hip, one my chest, one my stomach. And all of a sudden there's like nine nurses in there and I'm like going... What's going on? Oh, no, we can't tell you. We can't tell you. It wasn't because you were British and you thought you weren't going to pay your hospital. Probably, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, God, you need a blooming mortgage in America. That's a whole other story, let me tell you. And that's when I realised, yeah, something is pretty serious. And what was it? It was, um, yeah, it was a broken neck, unfortunately. It was my C2, yeah, my right lateral mass and a hangman's fracture as well. So So basically the fracture you would have if you were hung. Yeah. Yeah, so probably not the best fracture yeah. to have. How, how painful was it? You know what? At that stage, it was more my shoulder that was sore. I was only on codeine-based because mm. I didn't want to take morphine because <laughs> I was still seriously wanting to race. Yeah. But then I said, just give me morphine. Yeah. And they had to give me morphine to calm me down because I got... I was so... Oh, you would. <sighs> and my chest. And they're going, do not let him move his chest. So I've got um, Franco, my manager, pushing down on my chest, Julie trying to calm me down. And do you know when you, get in, you, know when you start shivering uncontrollably? But I was like that, but mm. just like heaving. So we, I had a catheter in and they, yeah, stuck a load of morphine in. And I was like, away with the fairies. <laughs> yeah. And so at, um, at this point, you sort of, you know, well, you were still thinking about racing at Absolutely. one point. When, when yeah, did it yeah. dawn on you that you, you were I, not I, racing? Um, I think when I was in, when I'd come out the MRI and all these nurses yeah. kind of like moved me, then I thought, oh yeah, I'm not walking out of here. It was diluted, the kind of seriousness of it, um, because they let me walk out like 12 hours later from the hospital. You walked out? They let me walk out 12 hours later with a brace. I, yeah. had, I had like a, I think it's called an Aspen collar, so a very aggressive neck brace. And I could only walk out if we had an appointment in so let me fly it uh, to Colorado and then as soon as we landed we went to Boulder Neuro Center and I was lucky there. there's a guy called Dr. V who is one of five or he was maybe there's more now one of five surgeons in America that can operate neural brain and neural spine he's so intelligent his bedside manager manner is appalling and I know that because um, unfortunately my daughter got very ill and had to have brain surgery a few years before and he was one of the surgeons that that was working with her so I knew what he was like and Mm. literally I went into his waiting room and um had this collar on and he'd, he'd had the scans and the reports and everything and he walked in and he goes oh you've really <laughs> and like when someone who you know is that freaking good and that direct you know then it's like and that's when it dawned that this is more serious than just having a collar on for you know mm. eight weeks and unable to run and he said look you've got three options but you don't have three options there are three things we can do but you have to do this mm. and that's when he said i had to wear a halo A halo. Sounds angelic, right? It's anything but. The easiest way to describe it, it's basically a carbon fibre ring which is attached not to the skin of your head but to your skull. It's screwed in with four titanium screws. 
That ring is then secured to what looks like a set of American football shoulder pads, which means that the upper body, the neck and the head are kept perfectly still. And literally, they shave the back of my head. They got a per permanent marker, marked two holes there, two there. Yeah, they got an Allen key with a torque wrench on and they screwed four titanium bolts. Just imagine for a second what that would feel like. You're sitting there in the hospital and the doctor is drilling bolts, actual bolts, into your head. Give you an example, when you're tightening up your seat post of your mountain bike, you tighten up to six newton meters. They were tightening the screws up to eight into my skull. They didn't even knock him out. All of this was done under local anaesthetic. And I was like, oh, that, that didn't take too long. And they're like, normally it takes like six hours, but it took like 50 minutes because you just sat there and we just screwed it in. Normally the patient has to walk around because it's so painful. And I was like, it's going to be the same pain, but for shorter if you just sit there. And then I'm. Do you think there's anything about going into the hurt locker so many times as a like you know top level athlete? Do you think that helped? I do, but it's not the hurt locker because I'm not saying it's the pleasure locker either. But mm. like in training, that hurt locker is a place I have to go to if I want to win. So it's just a place I go to. It's mm. not a hurt locker. If you want to win, you have to go there, and that's part of your life. That's part of your job. And for me, being practical. I want to compete again, I have to get this thing on my head. Let's get it on my freaking head and let's crack on with what we can do next. Day-to-day -day life, like, how was it with the no, halo? Like, I would say I, I would never have a halo again. Yeah, <laughs> and e I would not... E even given the choice again, knowing that yeah. it worked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, that they were... That the first two months, I'm not saying the most miserable of my life, but they were the toughest two months of my life. It is like having four titanium screws screwed into your skull, open wound. I literally, from my belly button up, I, had, I could not move. And I was on quite, for the first, I think, three weeks, very heavy codeine-based medication because it was, I was sleeping bolt upright in a chair. I couldn't put my socks on, I couldn't shower, couldn't wash, couldn't pick my kids up. I think there was one time, one night, when I, uh, they changed my medication and it didn't agree with me and I was throwing up. When you throw up, you've got this gag reflex. So you can imagine you've got four titanium pins, two in the front, two in the back, and you've got, you're going like that, but you're not moving. They're just going deeper in. And I couldn't stop. You can't stop yourself being sick because it's that, that reflex. So literally, there was probably two times where I went in the garage and I almost got an Allen key just to take this off. bloody thing off. Mm. Well, you've got this carbon fibre contraption bolted to your brain, pretty much. How do you go about getting on with life? Your life in yeah, particular? Well, you really rely on your friends and family without... Mm. You, you can't. I mean, you know, my wife became a single parent with a, with a third child who was a grumpy bugger, and that was me. <laughs> you know, well, I was lucky. My, my sister flew in, I think, the next day from Switzerland. She flew home. Then my mum flew in. I think the day before she flew home, the in-laws flew in, so it was crossover there. Whew, stressful for Kelly. I think for the three months Kelly worked out, we had about four nights on our own. Mm. Some of our really good friends, I'd never heard of it. Have you heard of a meal train before? 
Uh, no, it sounds great. It is yeah. amazing. You've got to break your neck to get one. Like, <laughs> love it, awesome. So basically, friends of ours, um, I normally do all the cooking. Mm. And on top of the stress of just like looking after me and the kids, the school run and trying to keep things normal. Basically, our friends, people had signed up who we know. Some people we didn't particularly know. They just knew of me in the community. I think it was four four days a week at like 5.30. There'd be a knock at the door. We'd open it and there'd be dinner on the doorstep for us, whether it's a homemade lasagna or salad or a takeaway pizza. They'd ask my wife what kind of foods. And literally that went on for three freaking months. That that is community. <laughs> yeah, wow. It's certainly a new level of suffering. Everybody yeah. was looking after you, but was was Tim looking after Tim? Or was Tim being a bit naughty and doing things he shouldn't um, be? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, I think physically I probably was doing too much, but mentally I needed to do the physical. I mean, um, yeah, I'd say about three or four weeks after I was in the gym when my physio came, John Dennis from Newcastle, he came over and we were doing some lower leg work, some band work between our knees, sideward. We were doing some um, rotation. Um, he was able to give me some massages because I was you know, stiff and sore. But every three weeks I'd get a scan. And then um, I think it was about three days before my first scan, my head just swelled up. Like So the halo was about an inch away from my skull, going all the way round with the pins going through it. And all of a sudden my head was touching the halo and it was like really pussy. And then I was like, do you know what? And I, I can feel the halo moving. So I went to the halo guy and he looked and one of the screws had so eight newton meters you go downhill mm. mountain biking and your seat post doesn't come loose it'd come loose so they had to tighten it but under no medication so i'm just sat there and he's got his torque wrench and then he goes oh, i best check them all and all of them all the screws had come loose and that and that was because i was probably doing a bit too much <laughs> and that happened three times and then just before christmas the front um the front left one they did a cat scan of the screws not my neck because they were worried if they tightened it any more, it was going to go through my skull. So they said, yeah, no, we can't tighten it. And I was going, you beauty, it's coming off like six weeks early. <laughs> now we're going to drill another screw in a centimetre. So my Christmas present, like eight, oh, eight, eight to ten days before Christmas is, they took a screw out and a centimetre to the left, they drilled another screw. But they gave me local anaesthetic for that one, so hey. At that point, the only thing keeping Tim going was the thought of returning to competition. With the halo on, I was still I was riding like up to towards the end, up to fifty minutes on the the turbo trainer, um, and I think the the biggest they described it when they took the halo off. They said Tim is going to feel like a bowling ball supported by a piece of spaghetti because you haven't used your neck muscles and your is it your scalenes and all these tiny muscles are are very small anyway. So if they wither away. You know, it's not like your quad is still going to be, the, you know, mm. your glute, the biggest muscle in your body, even when it withers away. So um, so when they took it off, I was literally expecting my head to be like, um, what was it Bill and Ben, the flower? <laughs> and I was like, actually, it doesn't feel that bad. Oh, that's good. And now I remember I stood up and I put my hands on the chair to stand. Literally, they've just taken it off. They've put uh, uh, the collar on and they're like, yep. And I remember standing up like that and I remember going, oh, my gosh, I cannot feel anything. And I looked down and I had lost so much muscle mass, my lats, my back, my chest. Mm. And then I realized I have it's not my neck I need to read. Well, it is my neck, but it's literally from my belly button up. I have not not only have I not used it, so they've withered away, but they've just not moved. It is mm. like and I, I, I always say this. It's like sitting in a middle row seat in an economy class seat flying for three months without moving that's how stiff 
I was and lost so much muscle mass. So for me, I could not lay flat on my back because I would go into spasm. I still had to, we had to buy one of those hospital beds that moves. Mm -hmm. And I would say for another probably two months after the halo came off, I was still having to sleep with it at an angle with my feet raised because the muscles weren't strong enough to lay flat on my back. When you've got a halo on, it's like, holy sh! look at that guy, you know. Mm. you know. But when you just got a neck collar on, even when the neck collar came off, it was like, well, I still can't swim. I can't run. I not very can't, Olympian. I can't ride yeah. a bike, mm. you know. And um, that was hard because I realised the task at hand was, yeah, proper hard. But Tim had a secret cunning plan. Against all the advice of the doctors and his recovery team, Tim was about to take on his most difficult challenge yet. It's a challenge which millions attempt every year, although not usually six months after breaking their neck. I'm competitive and mm. I love pushing the boundaries for myself. And um, yeah, the opportunity came up to, to run a marathon and I, I, I needed a goal. And I couldn't, I like to break things down, so I couldn't fathom doing a triathlon Mm. because at that stage, I I could only vertical kick in the swimming pool. That was as close as I got to swimming. Old English backstroke with a (laughs) neck collar on. That is literally as close as I could get. But running, my lower legs were good. I was on an Auto G treadmill by then, walking, walking. um, And yeah, the opportunity came to do the the Boston Marathon and I've never done one. And I I thought, well, you know what? If I I don't care what time I do, I might never run a marathon again. So I said yes. And then that's when Kelly was like, oh God, here we go. And that's when I started up in the training, going to the gym twice a day, running on the, booking double Auto G sessions. And we really, but it was literally, I think it was only about less probably about a month before Boston that I actually was running outside well not pain-free but I was running outside mm. yeah tell us a little bit about the race itself because Boston's very special isn't it? oh I mean like first marathon if that's my last marathon I can tick the box it's, it's an amazing experience it's a point-to-point marathon slightly downhill but the crowds are just bonkers for those that don't know the Boston Marathon is the world's oldest big city marathon it's so famous that people travel the whole world to run, myself included. It's known for Heartbreak Hill and, yeah, those crowds. You know, so I was really pumped and I landed the day before um, on the Saturday and it was snowing. Not ideal marathon running conditions. And it was a headwind on a point-to-point course. And I'm going, are you joking? But then they said, don't worry, the snow's going and driving rain is coming. So there's a minus, the wind chill factor was minus two. Sounds lovely. No, no, it doesn't. It sounds like running in a chest freezer. Over 50% of the pro men and women did not finish just because even though they had, I'm sure, Gore-Tex, you know, it was just, you got wet no matter what you had on. You know, the best clothing was a wetsuit. It certainly wasn't bikini weather. The start line's funny because it's a point-to-point. We get bussed out. Like, it's a late start, like 10.30. You get bussed out, like, five hours before and you've got bin bags over you because it was so cold. And now Tim was feeling the pressure. He'd even managed to set himself what seemed like an insane challenge in an article on the front page of the New York Times saying this guy wants to run sub 250 which I will say on record I did not say that I said I want to I, I said I think I can run three hours but to run anything under three hours like 250 would be amazing um, 
Yeah, and I'd never run a marathon, and if I, if whenever I, whenever I race, I'm prepared, and let, I, I wasn't particularly prepared, let alone the weather conditions, which were ice cold with a headwind. Um, so yeah, there was a lot, lot of apprehension there. I knew that if I ran within myself, that I could definitely, I could, I could run a solid performance, mm. but. I w- I'd never. I think that my longest run leading up to that had been about 26 kilometres on Magnolia Road. So I knew I had altitude on my side coming down to sea level, but I just didn't have the running in my legs. You yeah. Know, my. I, I think for a week after, my quads were absolutely wrecked. Just that pounding, pounding, pounding. I just hadn't hadn't got those months of running into run. I didn't. I'm not saying I didn't deserve. I, I shouldn't have run that fast, really, of what I'd done. I think that was that was the the mental side of it got me to push myself that far. Pounding, pounding, pounding. After I think I went through 10k in about 37 minutes, and all I could see was about a thousand people in front of me. And I looked back on one of the nice downhills, and literally the rest of what is it 20 odd thousand people and I was like this is amazing I, I, I don't have to run full gas mentally I was fresh I wasn't pushing the limits mm-hmm. so I could talk not not I'm not saying have a full up but I could say hey how you doing and I thought I can tuck in behind everyone when it's a headwind <laughs> normally I'm on my own yeah um how did that sort of the, the final straight compare to some of your fantastic victories in the past where where was your head at um I think it was it, it was jumping between I just want to finish now because I am so freezing I cannot feel any muscle in my body it was like I was uncontrollably shivering probably for the last three or four miles to I cannot believe I've done this this is the start I'm going to go and race a triathlon I'm going to go back you know if I can do this I can definitely do a triathlon um, yeah this, this has proved that I can do it He certainly could. Less than a year later, he returned to Kona and made the start line, finishing in 8 hours 45, which is elite. He's also won other Ironman series events in some extreme environments. Incredible. Thanks so much to Tim for being my guest on How to Be Superhuman, brought to you by Red Bull. If you want to learn more about Tim's story, you can watch the documentary Tim Don. The Man with the Halo on Red Bull TV now. Next week, I'll be welcoming Anna McNuff, the maverick adventurer who's just ran the length and breadth of Britain barefoot. I mean, like, properly barefoot. First thing, cutting my foot, it is ballooned at this point waves of pain through the night and I get up the next morning and I think oh, I'm just going to run it it'll be fine because my feeling was if I just pound on that area of my foot enough times it will desensitise the pain will go away and I'll just be able to run on and it'll only hurt again afterwards please remember subscribe and leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast and also get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag Red Bull how to be superhuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats or maybe suggest other people we should talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How to be superhuman is a something else production for Red Bull Media House.